Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 14 The Secrets That Everybody Guesses Midway through November, preparations for the tournament took on a renewed energy. There were easily three times as many witches and wizards as before, sporting the emblems of Britain and a half-dozen other European countries, not just France and Norway-Denmark, but Hispanopule, Polskatuva, and the Wizarding Roman Republic as well. Each official seemed to work thrice as fast and hard as before. For a short time, there was a worry that the Quidditch pitch was going to be taken over for the first task, but either the rumor was baseless or justice had prevailed, as Dimitri and Ron had put it during the following occlumency session. In any case, the pitch was safe, though the seating that surrounded it had been expanded. Beside the pitch was a new building, like a slab of black granite, two stories tall and cold to the touch. Further away, in the shadow of the Forbidden Forest, tournament staff assembled a trio of cottages. There was very little that anyone could gather about any of the buildings, except that the big black one was intended for one of the tasks, presumably the first, and the cottages were intended for other judges, that third triumvirate which Riddle had mentioned. They came and went at all hours of the day, even during the Quidditch game that was held shortly after the building was erected. It was Slytherin versus Gryffindor, which Hermione only knew because Victor had been helping the Slytherins train. What was most curious was that, when they came, they brought with them all sorts of containers, from fist-sized parcels wrapped in brown paper to long wooden crates that, even with the levitating charm, still took two people to move, one at the front to guide it, and one at the back to make sure that nothing ran into it. But they all left empty-handed, without so much as a plank of wood. The contents of the block, as the students started calling it, were a subject of fierce speculation, which the Weasley twins parlayed into a bed exchange. It raged all the more ferociously when Madame Pomfrey was summoned there one afternoon and exited with an unconscious British wizard levitating on a stretcher, his eyes blank and mouth frothy. Madame Maxime called Hermione and Fleur into her study that evening to assure them that man would make a full recovery within a week at most, and the long-term risks to any of the champions would be minimal. But for the next few days Hermione would, every so often, catch Fleur staring at her with a drawn expression. Hermione wanted to talk with Fleur about it, but what was there to talk about? She had a way out, inasmuch as she could forfeit now and go to Lunatois or some other school, but Joyce's had consequences, and she couldn't accept what that choice would entail. October's likely retaliation against Beaubaton, and Haywood's certain selection as Hogwarts's replacement champion. At least there were other things to think about, like occlumency, though that came with its own problems. For the last few weeks, occlumency had seemed more like a meditation session or a tiny, casual salon. Some days they would just sit and try to think of nothing, or else think of that damned mental image of a boat on the ocean that Dimitri kept insisting that they picture. Other times they'd get off topic and chat about Quidditch or classes or something, since Hermione was the only one of them who didn't see these sessions as just another fun extracurricular. Padfoot's routine presence didn't make her feel any more at ease either. "'I'm not sure that we should keep the dog around,' Hermione eventually said. She glanced back and forth between Dimitri and Padfoot several times before Dimitri said anything in response. "'But the dog is a very good boy.' As if to demonstrate this to Hermione, Dimitri scratched Padfoot under the chin, and the dog's tail thumped happily against the stone floor. 
He also works for the headmaster. Dimitri smiled. He is a dog. He is not having a job. He does sort of have a tendency to be around when people get in trouble, Ron said a little warily. Yes, yes, I've heard the dog before. But is the dog a legitimate? I am not thinking so. And if he were being so, then he still does not have a wand. But Riddle is a legitimate, Hermione said. Jenny, one of my friends in Hufflepuff said that Riddle has a way of knowing things that only Padfoot has seen. I know that animal minds aren't like the minds of humans or other beings, but couldn't he still use legitimacy on Padfoot? Dimitri looked at Hermione as if she were an idiot, and Hermione rankled. Of course he might do that. Riddle is a master legitimate. I do not know it myself, and must imagine it would be difficult. But if it is possible, and I am thinking it may be, then Riddle must surely know how the doing of it is done. But did I not tell you that this is a place for the keeping of secrets, and not for their sharing? He scratched Padfoot again, getting him up once, if Padfoot's kicking leg was any indication, a particularly good spot behind the ears. It does not matter if the dog is being present, because there is nothing which the dog can tell his master that should not be getting told. Might there not be being enchantments that record every doing that is done? Maybe the walls are having ears, or there are invisible portraits on them. Even if dog is gone, you are not knowing what else is the case. So you should just behave as if Riddle is sitting here beside us, which he may be. Dimitri took another drink from his flask, then sighed and stood to his feet. It is probably time that we practice a little agilimency, or rather that I practice it on you. I am not being very good at this, but I am good enough for a little practice of your occlumency, I think. Who would like to go first? Ron volunteered first, so Dimitri shuffled over to him in that perpetually off-balance way of his, and lifted his wand. Remember the boat. Think nothing but of the boat, Dimitri said, and then, Legilimens! For a little while the two of them were motionless except for their breathing and the way that Dimitri shifted a little on his feet. Hermione wasn't sure how long it was, except that it was enough for her to lose track of the time, but not so much that she felt uncomfortable in her seat. Then, as if unfreezing from a block of ice, Ron gasped, and Dimitri took a step backward. That Ron began, but Dimitri held up a warning finger. Do not be saying except what you would say in front of the world, Dimitri reminded him. You are very good at the imagining of things. Almost I could feel the waves, he said. And Ron grinned broadly. Not followed, taking about as long as Ron, and then it was Hermione's turn. Fixing a neutral expression on her face, lest it turn into a grimace, she waited for Dimitri to lock his eyes with hers and cast the spell. And while waiting, she tried to summon up the image which Dimitri had continued to describe at the beginning of each session. Hermione started with a very simple form, less a picture than a child's scrawl, a half-circle for the hall and a triangle sail and a line to join them, then added a few mental brushstrokes to give the suggestion of waves, and she could make them move up and down so that the boat rocked across the sea. Color was next, but it was hard, and Hermione had barely started to imagine different shades of blue on the water before she realized that she was losing track of the boat itself. Outside herself, Hermione was aware that Dimitri had already cast the spell, was already in her mind, observing this, observing her inability to keep everything together— was aware suddenly that it was Dimitri who had nudged her attention to the elements that were slipping through her grasp. It took everything she had not to swear aloud, and knowing that he could perceive her frustration from within only made things worse. "'You are—' Dimitri began, but he stopped immediately, because Hermione knew what he was going to say, that she was improving, and he knew that she knew it, and that she was already irritated. 
Actually saying the word would be like rubbing salt in the wound. Not everything can be mastered by simple study, he said instead, which wasn't much better. It's different from how I read about Oclumency in the books, Hermione said, trying not to let the frustration bleed out into her voice. And what you're talking about, this image that I'm supposed to hold in my mind, there's a difference between, I don't know how to put it, between seeing it and saying it. She glanced at Ron. I don't know how either of you do it, Hermione admitted. I am not being in many minds before I came to Hogwarts, and you ask these lessons of me, Dimitri said. But I was being enough to be knowing that different minds are different, and there is no one who can be saying why. Some are being artists, others theoreticians, some are imagining a mountain range, and others have no, how do you say it, mind's eye at all. You are having some, but not much, he acknowledged. Then what does that mean? Can I not learn occlumency at all? Dimitri shook his head, but the gesture was offset by the slight shrug of his shoulders, as though he weren't quite sure. I am being more like Ron than like you, and Theo too, I think, is more like two of us, but I do not think it is impossibility for you to become occlumens. There is more to occlumency than pictures, so a way is there, just is being harder way, with more walls in your way. Dimitri looked at Padfoot, as if the dog would offer a solution, then turned on his heel and began to pace, muttering to himself in Norwegian and occasional scraps of English. He seemed to think forever, though that impression was rather colored by Hermione's impatience, and then finally Dimitri turned back to her. His eyes were alight with triumph. Problem is being that basic occlumens must do two things first. Think of nothing not to be known by legilimens, and not think of first thing while they is doing it. When Boton C is imagined, it must at some point become, how do you say, second nature, so you can be giving image to legilimens without you thinking, without him knowing. And it is detailed, so he is thinking it real. Maybe distract them, maybe get them lost, yes? But you are not making so much the images. Dimitri said nothing until Hermione realized he was waiting for a response. Right, she replied. Her failure to hold an image in her mind was easier to admit, the more she had to admit it and she didn't quite grind her teeth on the words this time. We'll be imperfect, other way, but imperfect not bad. Is nobody being perfect? Yes, yeah, Dimitri said to himself, and he nodded. What I am wanting instead is for you to, how you say, memorize, when you are knowing... Memorize, Hermione said. It's nearly the same in English and French. I'm surprised the Norwegian word is so alike, actually. I'm nearly certain that it's derived from Latin. Dimitri jilted then gave a casual shrug and a lopsided smile. Anyway, homework for you, then, is book memorizing. Not simply until you know it, but until you are dreaming it, thinking it with no effort, word ten hundred coming as quickly as word one, like fierce river. That seemed doable. At least it was better than trying to make a boat in her mind again. How much? I am saying book, no? Memorize book. That's going to take a while, even for me. Dimitri's eyes widened a little. Small book, then. We had more later, probably. But for now, ten hundred words, and then we test, make sure it's working good. Hermione agreed. It was better than nothing, and sounded more than a little promising, and spent most of the rest of the day deciding on the right book to work with. While the Triwizard Tournament continued to approach, and while physical preparations for the first task went on, Hermione found plenty with which to occupy herself. Professor Tempentici, who was handling Hermione's correspondence Greek and Latin work, wanted translations of seven Pompeian curse tablets, 
and there were alchemy readings which Hermione needed to make progress on if she wanted to be accepted into Professor Feo's class next year. There was the assignment from Dimitri as well, which Hermione liked to think she could have accomplished in a good day's work if not for her classes, and the correspondence work, and her research on the laws governing non-humans in Britain, which were uplifting and horrifying in equal measure. As it was, Hermione had memorized her ten hundred words, from a comprehensive history of the Triwizard Tournament, which actually only went up to the seventeenth century, but not as naturally as Dimitri insisted. Her funds continued to deplete, too, but it wasn't too long before Hermione had a revelation. The Hogwarts students were only permitted to visit Hogsmeade on select weekends, which were, at least from the perspective of the students, pitifully few and far between, while the visiting delegations could apparently visit whenever they chose. After talking over her idea with Draco and Neville, Hermione entered into the delivery business. For a slight markup, Hermione would acquire anything that could be acquired, be it books or sweets or quills, and deliver it within a day or so. Not everyone in Hogsmeade would deliver by outpost, and those who did could still be undercut a little. Hermione was heading to Hogsmeade regardless, after all, and a couple of good charms made even heavy loads more than bearable. Draco and Neville acted as middlemen, taking both orders and deliveries and passing them on in exchange for a fifteen percent cut of the profits. They had probably earned that cut just by being an adequate front for Hermione so that she would have more time before someone else put two and two together, but then Draco had a few words with Ginny and a whole new segment of the market opened for them. Portrait Club. More than a few members of Portrait Club liked to eat something while they watched the night's event. Her concerns about the house elves notwithstanding, Hermione could admit that they were excellent cooks, and the food which they made available at the drop of a hat was simply excellent. But even the most divinely inspired croissant was not a ginger salamander, and so, portrait club occurring far more often than Hogsmeade weekend, the number of students who craved Honeyduke sweets was usually greater than the number of students who had any. While the markup was small, and would probably get smaller as the next Hogsmeade weekend approached, Hermione was able to make up for that in volume. At any rate, she made enough to cover the day-to-day expenses of soup and sandwiches, and whatever else she decided to eat down at Hogsmeade. The day before the first task, and starting just around dinner time, there were quite a few more people hanging around the cottages. All that anyone knew, or all that anyone would tell, was that the cottages had received their intended guests, who would not make themselves known until the task itself. Once more, bets were taken, and the Hogwarts rumor mill was certain that the cottages held everyone from the King of Polskatuva to the Sheik of Alhazar. The meeting of the Triwizard Champions that took place that Wednesday was fraught with unease. They discussed previous tasks, debating what could or couldn't plausibly fit in the block, and how many previous judges had tried to skirt the rules or sabotage champions, but to Hermione their activity felt less like strategizing than keeping their mind off things with pointless trivia. The first task was set to begin the next morning, and for all that they had been assured that the tournament would be safer than its original incarnation, there were many terrible harms that nevertheless fell well short of death. The day's lessons had been cancelled because the first task would take place in the afternoon, and Riddle understood that, with the Triwizard looming, most of the students would be too distracted for morning classes to accomplish anything. Hermione was a little disappointed by the cancellations in general, but she didn't have it in her to feel sorry about missing History of Magic, even if she felt a little sorry about that. It was also nice to have another leisurely morning Hogsmeade trip with Fleur, even if it felt oddly like a last meal. When they returned, there was someone from the French government waiting at the carriage, who guided them down the way to the Quidditch pitch. Sometime in the middle of the night, the block had been transposed to the Quidditch pitch proper, no longer beside it, but now wreathed by the stadium seats. 
beside the block were Madame Pomfrey, five of her trainees, and another half-dozen older witches and wizards, all dressed in white and lime. Only a few students were out here already, and those who wandered close to the pitch were shooed away by guards or workers. Hermione and Fleur, however, were taken into a little tent that had been set up near the outside perimeter. Victor was already there, sitting in a chair across from an older witch. Her black hair was loose and cut short, about level with her shoulders, and floated back away from her face as if caught in a mild breeze that only she could feel. She was dressed in the black robes and the stylized M of the British Ministry. Below the emblem was a rectangular bronze strip engraved with the words Department of Magical Games and Sports. The two of them were in an animated discussion of Quidditch, of which Hermione could only understand one word in three. It was probably just a very technical conversation, but for all Hermione knew, they were throwing in a bit of Bulgarian or Norwegian. "'Griffiths,' the escort said, and the witch startled. "'Right, right,' she said, with the air of one who had forgotten there was a job to do, and she stood and greeted them. "'I'm Wilda Griffiths, and I'll be your announcer for this tournament,' she said, taking Hermione's right hand and Fleur's left at the same time. Griffiths attempted to conjure coffee for them, but it was flimsy stuff, and Hermione eventually went for the tea instead, which Griffiths understandably had more experience with. It wasn't properly real, of course, but tea didn't nourish the body, and Hermione still felt a little more alert, so it didn't matter much whether the effects were all in her hand or Griffiths had been able to capture the stimulating element in her conjured tea. "'If you're the announcer, do you know who the other judges are?' asked Victor. "'I do.' Griffiths replied. "'But I shan't tell. You're not to know a thing about them until it's time, and that's that.' "'Is there something that we should be doing to prepare for the first task?' Hermione asked. But Griffiths just took the opportunity to launch on an utterly irrelevant pep talk about when she used to prepare for Quidditch games. "'I used to play for the Holyhead Arpies, you know,' Griffiths added, as if her credentials would impress them. This much Quidditch talk was frankly useless, in Hermione's opinion— the three of them were not a Quidditch team, and whatever horrors lay in that block were probably not mounted on broomsticks. Even Victor looked rather glazed as Griffiths prattled on, and when he and Fleur asked for hints about the task as well, Griffiths dodged their questions like a couple of bludgers. Finally, it was time for Griffiths to lead them out of the tent and onto the pitch, where they assembled beside the block. By a trick of light and magic, Hermione could just about see the other side of the pitch, never mind that the block was in the way. It wasn't very subtle magic, though. Trying to look that way for more than a few seconds strained her eyes. Directly in front of her was a set of elevated seats. In the front row sat Riddle, Karkaroff, and Madame Maxime. Behind them were the second set of judges, Bagman, October, and Mertvago, over whose shoulder hovered a pale yellow light. Riddle raised a hand, and the chattering in the stands was hushed. Griffith shimmied her wand a little, then tapped the end of it against her chin. Sonorous, she incanted, and then... In a much louder voice, she began to speak. The performance of the Tribes of Champions at this and every task will be evaluated by a set of nine judges. To provide for continuity, six of these judges will remain constant through all three tasks, but the final three judges today have been selected for their particular competencies. In no particular order, I'd like to welcome the following to Britain and to the Triwizard Tournament. Two rows behind Madame Maxime, an old witch rose from her seat. Her hair was very light in color, somewhere on the border between white and the palest blue, and her glasses looked thick enough to break her nose. 
Hermione had met her in person only a handful of times, and recognized her only a split second before Griffith spoke again. Florence! Rima Feo! Professor of Alchemy at Beaubaton, and native of Hispanopoule, Griffiths announced. Fair returned to her seat and was replaced by a tall and treely wizard. The left side of his face was covered in a network of dark scars, like black veins overlaid with two neat red lines that intersected over his cheek. Siegfried Leichenberg, whose manuals for advanced potions work can be found in every academy for applied magic in the Wizarding Roman Republic. Leichenberg was known for something else, too, though it took a moment for Hermione to realize it. Fleur, those adventure novels that Samara likes, One Dozen Dooms at Meadow Mountain or whatever, that's him. Samara never mentioned anything about his non-fiction work, she said, a little put out. To Leichenberg's right, the last of the three new judges stood. Viltati Blogana, a senator of Polsky, Polskliga, Poland, Lithuania, and member of the Chamber of Deputies for many decades prior, was how Griffiths described her. Hermione waited for Griffiths to say something more and mention some kind of relevant expertise, even after Blogana took her seat again, directly behind Mertvago, but Griffiths only said, We're all very grateful for your attendance, which might have been intended for the judges as a whole. I'm sure you're all eager to learn what kind of contest we're going to be watching today. The first task will be, on its face, very simple. All that the champions will have to do is brew a specific potion, Griffith said. Of course, students do that all the time. So the judges have decided on a few complications in order to make things exciting. The champions' brewing ingredients aren't going to be at any one station or in a convenient cabinet. Instead, we've divided the area into quadrants. One for each of the four elements, and the ingredients which the champions will need to gather have been distributed throughout the quadrants in a way that corresponds to their elemental properties. That seemed all right to Hermione. The potion would probably be a complicated one, since it was supposed to pose a challenge to someone with as much schooling as Fleur or Victor, but it sounded like the hard part might just be the scavenger hunt. The first task might even be a little fun, if she were careful. When the champions reach their stations, they will find a potion for each of them. They will have to identify this potion, and then devise and produce a counter-brew. Testing the first potion is permitted, but the test material will have to be separated from the rest of the potion, and no more than ten minims can be separated. Hermione frowned. Ten minims might work out to no more than five drops, depending on how viscous the potion was. That would pose a challenge, but not an impossible one. I know what you're thinking. This won't be interesting enough, and you want something more, Griffith said completely counter to Hermione's thoughts. But never fear, there is a twist. The champions will have five minutes, and no more than that, to examine their potion, but mere observation and even testing will not be enough to tell them what they have. After their five minutes are up, or sooner if they'd like, they will consume their potion. Griffiths paused for effect. They continued, speaking excitedly to the murmuring crowd. You see, they won't just be making a counter-brew. They'll be making an antidote. Something with which to cure themselves, if they can. And like that, Hermione found herself quite pessimistic, and no disastrous scenario was too implausible for her brain to consider. Would Riddle just give her a poison? Or adulterate the potion somehow, so that her cure was ineffective? Hermione took a deep breath. No, why would he go to all the trouble of placing her in a position to die here when there had been plenty of other opportunities to kill her? As they work, their potion will take effect and their work may become more difficult to perform, so it will be to their benefit to figure out what they've drunk as quickly as possible. Griffiths turned to face Hermione, Fleur, and Victor directly. 
Our team of healers is on watch to make sure that no one dies, but you can be sure that any failure to produce the antidote will still be very uncomfortable, she said, as brightly as if she were commenting on a thrilling Quidditch maneuver. Now, broadly speaking, the three champions will operate in an enclosed environment. Griffiths pointed with her free hand to the block behind Hermione. But for the pleasure of the tournament's audience, its walls will become transparent in one direction only to prevent distractions. Also, friend Matvagel has, on behalf of the Russian government, helpfully lent three eyes to us, which we have sympathetically connected to the Omnioculars that you can find beneath your seats. Griffiths paused for a few seconds, during which Hermione could see and hear a great deal of shuffling about. Each of the champions has been assigned an eye, which will follow them around so that you can get a good view of them without worrying about anything getting in the way. As Griffith spoke, an eye of providence fitted over Hermione's shoulder like a phantom glowbug, almost unnoticeable, and then shone brightly, as Mertvanko's was doing. And one final note. Since they will all be in the same environment as each other, at the same time, the champions may, as they are able, interfere with each other's work. At least there was one thing Hermione wouldn't have to worry about. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.